triune God, you are glorious and mighty. You are a refuge and strength. You alone are salvation. We thank you for allowing us to be your people through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray also this morning for Paul. We pray for his physical healing, but we also pray for him spiritually, that you would strengthen and encourage and give peace. We pray that for his family as well. And now, Lord God, we pray that as your Holy Spirit uses your word, that you would help us to see your compassion, that you would wipe from us any complacency over sin, over your heart. We pray that the words and example of Stephen will lead us back to Christ and that we will walk humbly like our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. We've been for several weeks now in this section of Acts chapters 6 and 7 that are about Stephen. And we finally reach this point where Stephen will be, you, you might remember if you were here that I introduced this section with what's the first thing that you think of when you think of Stephen, and some of you said aloud either martyrdom or the stoning of Stephen. And we finally reach that point in this narrative. And I thought I would tell you by way of introduction that martyr to us means someone being killed for their faith as a verb, or it means the one who is killed for their faith as a noun. And the English word martyr comes from the Greek term for witness, martis. So the intent of the meaning that has been passed down to us is the idea of someone testifying to Christ to the point of dying as a faithful witness. In life and in death, we are Christ's witnesses. Now, the reason we're talking about this then is because we've come to the end of Acts 7 where Luke describes the climactic words of Stephen's speech that he's been giving to the Sanhedrin. And then... Luke gives us their reaction, which leads to Stephen's stoning. So as we study closely verses 51 to 60 of Acts chapter 7, let's keep in mind what the Holy Spirit-inspired text can teach us from here. And what the Holy Spirit inspires isn't separate from what Stephen teaches or what Luke intends for his audience. In fact, what we are to learn comes to us through them and their purposes. Stephen wants his audience to experience conviction of sin so that they'll repent and respond to the gospel, that God offers perfect and permanent restoration to himself through Jesus. Luke wants that, the same thing that Stephen wants, plus some more. Luke wants us to see Stephen as a model witness in life and in death. So let's look first at the climax of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, where he says in verse 51, 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, wait a minute. Stephen has given this really long speech, and he was the one sort of on trial, but he's completely turned the tables, and it seems as if somebody else is on trial now. Although all of this began with Stephen being questioned before the Sanhedrin about what he had been teaching to the other Hellenistic Jews, his speech has now turned the tables and shown a light on the guilt of his audience. Here at this climax, Stephen switches from regular references in the first person plural, saying our. Some of you really picked up on that. You noticed that, that in Stephen's connection to his audience, he was frequently speaking of our fathers and our people because he himself is a Jew. But in this, in this portion, he switches to you, which is second person plural. Why does he do that? Because God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has transformed Stephen by grace through faith. Stephen no longer stands in the line of rejectors and idolaters, but has responded to God's ultimate messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Stephen can't include himself in this group anymore. Stephen is in the right to rehearse this history of God's people through the times of Abraham and Joseph and Moses, and then quote the prophets to demonstrate that his hearers are following in the hard-hearted footsteps of those who came before them, calling them specifically a stiff-necked people is a real stinger, and not just because it carries the meaning of being hard-headed or stubborn, we might say pig-headed, Stephen's audience would have been knowledgeable in the details of the history that he had reviewed. And so when he calls them, them stiff-necked, he's referring back to this very section of Exodus in chapters 32 and, and 33 where they committed idolatry with the golden calf. And then God and Moses are scathing in their reproach of the people, calling them stiff-necked people, like an obstinate ox or mule that refuses to be directed in the right way that he should go. So they, so, so too they should know that the covenant of circumcision was meant to, to extend merely beyond an outward physical sign, but it was supposed to be true of their hearts. In this very context where Moses himself is retelling the story of the golden calf. So now we go to Deuteronomy where Moses is retelling these things and, and he's retelling the fact that in his anger, he broke the first tablets. God told him to make two more, and then he went back up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments again on tablets of stone. And in that context where he's retelling it, this is what he says. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord, God, Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
and thereby to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, stiff-necked, unrepentant, and idolatrous. Stephen adds the concept of their ears as well because they refuse to listen, continuing to resist the Holy Spirit. It was a common understanding that the Spirit of God was the one who inspired the prophets as God's messengers. They continue in the footsteps of their rebellious fathers who, by rejecting and persecuting the prophets, they were resisting the message from God himself. To resist these messengers from God is to resist God. And now thinking about their responsibility in connection to the death of the prophets, the IVP background commentary says that Jewish tradition, after these after what the, the Old Testament had already taught, Jewish tradition had heightened Israel's responsibility for the death of the prophets. So Stephen acknowledges the validity of that understanding, that they are guilty of rejecting and killing the prophets. And these prophets that they persecuted and killed were in fact pointing forward to the coming righteous one, Stephen says, who is none other than Jesus of Nazareth whom they betrayed and murdered. It's right to call it betrayal because he is the promised Messiah. It's right to, because he was, he was the ultimate God-sent deliverer. And it's right to call it murder because he was not only innocent of wrongdoing, but he was in, he was in fact vindicated in being exactly who he claimed to be. Before Stephen closes this indictment, where he has referred to them as stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, resisting the Spirit, persecuting and killing the prophets, betrayers and murderers of the Messiah. He says, all the while being the very people to whom the law was given. But of course, they did not keep the law. Anyone who would break God's perfect law at any point is guilty of all of it, James says, in chapter 2, verse 10. And although there is no direct reference to angelic involvement, you notice that Stephen mentions angels being involved in the giving of the law. So in the Old Testament, it doesn't reference that directly, but Stephen agrees with what Paul says. Paul references this in Galatians 3.19, and the author of Hebrews references it in Hebrews 2.2, that the angels were somehow tied to mediating the law as it was given. Now, I've reviewed that quickly, but what is the bottom line of all of this? In spite of having the law and the temple, which we spoke of last week, and the prophets and the promises, Stephen says, in spite of all that, you are an idolatrous people who have rejected God's Messiah. But it doesn't have to end there. Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of the law. Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of the temple. 
Jesus continues fulfilling the prophets and all the promises. However, this audience doesn't allow Stephen to get any further. Stephen is clearly angling toward repentance and response to Jesus, but he gets no further than this indictment. Before we move on, though, from these verses, I'd like to draw your attention to at least a couple of things by way of application. First, that conviction of sin, recognizing personal responsibility for sin, is an essential component of the gospel and for right response to the gospel. Conviction of sin is an essential component of the gospel and of right response to the gospel. The gospel that God is holy and that we have rebelled and that God therefore sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be perfect, to be the perfect Adam, to be the perfect Israel, to be the son who would not sin but who would be faithful to the Father in every way, to be the one who would fulfill all of the Levitical law and the purpose of the temporary covering of sacrifices for forgiveness, Jesus would do that perfectly once for all. And all of this because of our sin. Jesus was atoning for sin, yours and mine. So the gospel exposes our sin not to harm us, but to heal us. Stephen isn't lashing out. This is wounding with surgical precision. You shouldn't feel bad then about lovingly confronting people with their sin. In fact, it's essential, it's necessary. You were saved because the Holy Spirit of God confronted you in your sin. The gospel necessarily offends us before it can heal us. We lovingly say things like, I know you think you're fine, but you're spiritually sick and you're dying. Your sin is killing you. If you don't repent and turn to God, you have no one to blame but yourself because God has offered you salvation and restoration through Jesus Christ. Another thought of application is that we are all on trial before the perfect justice of God. Stephen has turned the tables on this audience, and they are on trial. We are all on trial before the perfect justice of God. When confronted in our sin, we can either be insulted or convicted. We can either be insulted or convicted when we're, our sin is confronted. Clearly, from God's word, which response in, to be insulted or convicted, which one displays a spirit-enabled sensitivity to God? Do you remember when Peter preached to them earlier, to people in Jerusalem earlier at Pentecost, and the response afterwards that they were 
They were cut to the heart. That's conviction of sin. Conviction of responsibility. That leads then to turning in faith to God. Which response is pleasing, therefore, to God? To be insulted or to be convicted? As we continue, we see that Stephen's audience literally proves his point about their hard-heartedness. Rather than being convicted, they're insulted and enraged. Not only do they treat Stephen as a blasphemer, but they behave like an angry mob and stone him to death. Verses 54 to 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. These perpetrators of Stephen's death are completely out of control. But Stephen is perfectly calm and composed. How can that be? Well, here's a question to ask ourselves in this section. Who's right with God and safe from ultimate harm? In the spirit, Stephen experiences the comfort and assurance of God in the hardest of moments. But first, let's look at how the members of the Sanhedrin are enraged. It's a word that describes a violent emotional response that is pictured by their hearts being sawed in half. They're enraged. And then the gnashing of their teeth also pictures their fury. This is not a mild frustration or anger. They're losing control. The writing is on the wall. But in the midst of their mounting irrational rage that is about to unleash itself on Stephen, God graciously grants Stephen a vision of heaven. This vision is to Stephen comfort and assurance that God's glory is on full display and remains untarnished, and that the risen and ascended Jesus is standing in his rightful place at the right hand of God. Stephen then declares what he sees because to his audience, this vision is the final proof of all that he has been proclaiming. The Son of Man is Jesus, who stands vindicated at the right hand of God. And not only this, but the judge, therefore, stands to declare his verdict. You remember that you've heard some scriptures about Jesus being seated at the right hand of majesty, because then he's done, right? He has finished what he came to do in his first coming, but now Jesus stands in this vision at the right hand of God because the, the judge would stand to declare his verdict. Who is right? And who is being judged? Stephen is innocent. He is right with God. And these perpetrators are guilty of precisely what Stephen has said. 
as their reaction reaches a frantic pitch in verses 57 and 58, they stone Stephen. And maybe you know, maybe you've heard in in other teaching from the New Testament or read somewhere that the Romans really didn't like their subject nations exercising capital punishment. John 18, 31 tells us this. They certainly wouldn't have wanted them to do it without their permission. And even though the Mosaic law in Leviticus 24, 16 prescribed stoning as the punishment for blasphemy, Luke portrays this as irrational and twisted. They scream and cover their ears and they rush at him, all with a single mind, it says, to kill Stephen. In their violent reaction to him, one has to ask, who's right with God at this moment? These religious leaders who should, who should exercise such a responsibility of formal execution with utmost care, here are portrayed as a violent mob. They literally throw him out of the city and begin stoning him. I confess the idea of putting someone else to death is difficult to stomach, which undoubtedly it should be. Killing a man by stoning would have taken a great deal of effort, even with many hands. So they take off their cloaks to not be impeded by the extra heat, weight, and encumbrance. And they cast stone after stone at an innocent Christian. And here is mention of a young Pharisee named Saul who was present at whose feet they laid their outer garments. Chapter 8, verse 1 will tell us that he was giving approval to their action. Uh, I want to remind you who the author is. And Luke has a relationship to Paul. Man, this is some truth-telling, isn't it? Can you imagine Paul relating his involvement to Luke with pauses in the story? And with tears, I was there. I was part of this. And not only his involvement with Stephen's death, but his fervent and ferocious persecution of the saints until his own dramatic conversion. This is not sensationalism or embellishment. It is truth. It is telling the truth to emphasize the dramatic effect of our hard hearts toward God of the dramatic effect even of our guilt for rebellion and persecution of his messengers. So was I, Paul would say. But here is also an echo of hope. Not only would Christ later make Saul his own, but this Paul could also tell Luke the story with tears of joy at God's forgiveness Tears of joy at Stephen's testimony to him and to others. The death of a saint who modeled Christ's trust in God and modeled Christ's love and forgiveness toward the perpetrators. As the stoning continued, Stephen called out to his Savior standing on high, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the same way, the Lord himself had cried out from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Man, what high Christology is this? Jesus says to Father God, into your hands I commit my spirit, and now Stephen can say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His second prayer also mirrors that of his Lord from the cross. Stephen goes to his knees, either because he can no longer stand under all the blows or as a deliberate posture of prayer. He cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is the same posture of forgiveness from Christ himself, who had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Both of these things Luke recorded in chapter 23 of his gospel. Can there be any doubt that the Spirit of God in Stephen strengthened him to be a model of the character of the Lord Jesus? Can there be any doubt that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen peace and calm and assurance that he was right with God by faith in Jesus? In fact, as Stephen dies, the author uses the Christian way of describing death as if to be falling asleep. (laughs) It's hard to picture dying under stoning as merely falling asleep. And yet that's the term used because death to God's saints is going in peace, right with God and being ushered into the presence of God. Can there be any doubt that Luke puts forward Stephen as an example for us to follow, a model witness in life and in death? Will our life and death testify to Christ? We said last week that the way that Stephen presented in his speech, like Moses and the other prophets, like Jesus, only Jesus is the greater, the greatest prophet. And then here we see like Jesus, like Stephen. Whether or not Stephen knew he would be put to death, he certainly knew that it was a possibility. And without a doubt, the author Luke intentionally portrays Stephen in the line of the prophets who spoke God's truth and and were rejected as his messengers. So too, like Jesus, Stephen is martyred for loving others enough to tell them the truth. For us then, I have two concluding applications connected together in an understanding of our suffering in this life. In our suffering, we must see with our hearts that Christ is standing at the right hand of majesty, confident in his mediation and confident in his lordship. To our dying breath, we trust that our Lord is awaiting us with open arms. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And to our dying breath, we must view God's enemies with the forgiving and compassionate heart of Jesus. We need to see others the way that God sees them, the way that he has seen us. And so I encourage you to proclaim Christ with the conviction of a saved sinner who has compassion on lost sinners. I encourage you to proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
proclaim Christ from the pages of God's word and proclaim Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. When we belong to God, what can man do to us? What could be more loving than proclaiming Christ? And finally, suffer with confident assurance in God. In life and in death, suffer with confidence, assurance in God, confident assurance in God through Jesus Christ and the spirit that he has given you. The grace God is giving you to trust in and rely on him in your present suffering is probably a much greater testimony to those around you than you realize. I was talking to a friend recently who was suffering, and they were talking about how the, the difficulty of the suffering and the trial has just made it such that they can't be involved in as many other things as they would like to. And I tried to encourage them that just resting in God, loving and pursuing Him, was a great blessing in ministry to me. Fellow believers around you are thankful and inspired by the work of the Spirit in you. We are being reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus and the promises of Jesus to bring all things to completion and perfection. One day soon, one day soon. In the Spirit, then, we must learn to look beyond the suffering to the joy of what God is accomplishing. We look to our Savior, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through through three, here the author of Hebrews refers not only to Jesus, but to the saints who have gone before, who have already died and gone to be in the presence of the Lord. The hall of faith of chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of those of faith who have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. How did Jesus do it? Who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, looked beyond the immediate suffering to the goal. For the joy that was set before him, for those like you and me that he was going to make his own through this suffering, he endured the cross, despising the shame and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And chapter, or also see verse 7. Another thing about suffering. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good, verse 10 will say, that we may share in his holiness. The suffering you are enduring with a heart that trusts in God is a sweet and pleasing aroma to him. The suffering you are enduring, if you will abide in Jesus, is making you into his likeness. And the suffering you are enduring 
in dependence upon the Lord is literally ministering to those around you. And again, I will say, I can promise you that it blesses and encourages my own faith, and it causes me to pray for you and to praise God for his grace. What a testimony Stephen is of the power of the work of the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, you have been given the same Spirit. If you will abide in him, he will give you grace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We praise you for your glory. Your glory that you manifested to Stephen to allow him to suffer with peace and comfort and assurance, to be an example to us that with the eyes of our hearts, we can perceive your glory, which you have shown us by the gift of your Holy Spirit. With the eyes of our hearts, we can see our Savior standing on high, who has already accomplished for us what is necessary to be right with you and who is still drawing others to himself. Thank you for the privilege of being in you. Lord, thank you for allowing us to know that there is purpose and meaning even in our suffering in this life. Help us to endure with the joy of our Savior set before us. In his name we pray. Amen.